Previously on Regressives, we discussed the case of Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University. The plaintiffs in that case argue that Asian American students have been systematically discriminated against by Harvard's admissions office. What makes that dispute unique among challenges to affirmative action is how it presents a zero-sum competition among different minority groups. The presumed beneficiaries are Black and Hispanic students, while the losers are Asian Americans. But that story leaves out one significant class that enjoys privilege well beyond any single racial group. Legacy admissions. All students deserve a fair shot at getting into college. That practice of giving an admissions edge to relatives of alumni. The practice of legacy college admissions dates back more than a century. Emerging in the 1920s amid an influx of immigrants and members of the Jewish community. Some schools say legacy encourages alumni to donate and adds money for student scholarships. Supporters of legacy admissions say the decision should be left up to individual schools. Just to be clear, yeah. you believe that colleges should not use legacy. I think colleges ought to use merit in order for people to get in, and I think they ought to use a merit system like the one I put out. The preferences that Harvard gives to athletes' legacies, children of donors, and children of faculty and staff. That's Harvard Law Professor Jeannie Suk Gerson, whom we heard from in the last episode. That category is known as ALDCs for short, in the Harvard admissions process, that group, ALDCs, they comprise a third of each class at Harvard. The most discussed component of ALDC is the L, legacy students. That refers to students who've received preference in admissions due to familial connections, usually a relative who previously attended the university. At most universities, that means a parent or grandparent who previously attended, though some go further and accord the same preferences for siblings. These students are under renewed scrutiny in recent years. Even Saturday Night Live weighed in with a sketch imagining a college admissions board as it deliberated over its final few admission slots. And next up is Kevin Willett. Huh! That, uh, that appears to be a mugshot. Yes, it is. Uh, Kevin is currently in juvenile detention for stabbing two of his friends, but he is a fourth-generation legacy. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, and he's probably got all the stabbing out of his system. Okay, so it sounds like we're admitting Kevin, so we're down two spots. Well, I This sketch may seem like an exaggeration, but their portrayal may not be that far off. Admissions officers may not be as crude as the Sandra O oh or Kenan Thompson characters, but they're no less enamored with children of alumni. During the trial over Harvard's alleged discrimination, material submitted to the court suggests that over a six-year period, 33.6% of legacy children were admitted, compared to just 5.9% of non-legacy applicants. That's a group of people that currently are disproportionately white. And so Harvard doesn't want to forego admitting those applicants and giving them an advantage currently, because it, of course, has financial benefits to Harvard to be able to admit legacies because you breed a lot of loyalty among your graduates if you sort of, you know, have the knowledge, everyone has the knowledge that you will get some some advantage when your kids apply. So I'm sure there are lots of kids who are legacies who are not admitted, many, many, but the fact that it is something that will be considered makes it more likely for graduates of the school to give money on a regular basis for their whole lives. 
These preferences are what author Richard Kallenberg calls affirmative action for the rich. At Harvard, 77% of legacy students are white, and less than 6% of legacy admissions go to Hispanic students, even though over 18% of Americans are Hispanic. A 2019 National Bureau of Economic Research paper calculated that white students admitted to Harvard with some kind of artificial preference, which includes athletes and children of staff, only a quarter of them would have been admitted without that preference. Of course, Harvard isn't the only school that employs legacy admissions. At Harvard, I believe the class of 2023, the class that's going to graduate this year, was more than 25% legacy students. That's University of Texas San Antonio law professor Jasmine Harris. I went to uh, Vassar College as an undergrad, and the year that I started my class, the class of 2005, was the biggest legacy class they had ever admitted, about 25% of students. And at schools that are highly selective like that, you know, that are letting in less than 20% of all applicants, you really put Black and Brown students at a disadvantage without ever having to mention their race. An analysis by a Harvard doctoral student found that at the country's 30 top colleges, having a parent graduate increased the chance of admissions by 45 points. Legacies have become so dominant at certain universities that they've come to outnumber many marginalized groups. For Notre Dame's class of 2024, legacies outnumber black students five to one. And Notre Dame is not an outlier. Universities where legacy students outnumber black students include Stanford, Santa Clara University, Lehigh, USC, Cornell, Harvard, and Princeton. A 2004 Princeton study estimated that legacy at top schools is worth an additional 160 points on an SAT out of a 1,600-point scale. These schools are already pulling from the most elite in society. As the New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof pointed out, 38 colleges, including five from the Ivy League, had more students from the top 1% than from the bottom 60%. And overall, children from the top 1% are 77 times more likely to attend an Ivy League college than children from the bottom 20%. Legacy and donor preferences are one of the most powerful tools that universities use to select for those children. But where do these policies come from? Here's Professor Harris again. First in the 1920s and then again around um, World War II, you see universities make these policies which preference students who have historical connections to the institutions, meaning they have family members who have also attended those universities. Um, these policies were meant to be exclusionary, much like the foundations of higher education itself. And so they were put in place as these institutions start to see an increase in undesirable student attendance, right? Um, in particular, Italian and Irish students, right, first, then Jewish students, and finally, Black and um, Brown, you know, widely defined students. By mid-century, universities became even more urgent as historically excluded groups came knocking on their doors. Even before for the sort of center apex of the civil rights movement, the way we understand it sort of in the mid to late 50s, early 60s, when black GIs, you know, soldiers start to come home from World War II with these GI bills, right, which were supposed to help veterans get educations and buy homes, they are turned away 
you know, at the doors of the most exclusive institutions at the Harvards, at the Princetons, because they were Black. Even the influx in applications, you know, from these types of students caused these institutions to say, hold on, you know, now we really need to go back to these legacy policies and rewrite them in a way that justifies our exclusion of these people, because now there's a whole new population of students who are trying to get into these schools and have the means. Now, some administrators did try to fight back. In the 1960s, for example, Yale's dean of admissions, R. Inslee Clark, decreased the weight of legacy status and cut in half the proportion of legacy students in the freshman class. The scholar Richard Reeves, writing in The Atlantic, described what happened next. Quote, outrage ensued. The conservative author and commentator William F. Buckley complained that without legacy preference, Quote, a Mexican-American from El Paso High with identical scores on the achievement test has a better chance of being admitted to Yale than Jonathan Edwards XVI from St. Paul's School, end quote. Clark lost his fight, and today legacy preferences are treated as business as usual. Here's Richard Reeves discussing legacy admissions. Legacy admissions, I'm not going to say much about this, except, really? <laughs> <laughs> The only country in the world with hereditary principle operating in post-secondary missions. And interestingly, in the 19th century, it was unthinkable in the US and common in the UK. By the middle of the 20th century, being wiped out in the UK and introduced in the US. And actually, legacies didn't just continue, they grew. According to an analysis from Catherine Leduski in the University of Michigan Law Review, by the early 2000s, Legacies comprise 10 to 15% of the student body at Ivy League schools and up to 20% of the students at other major institutions. Not every school gives legacy preferences. Most British institutions, including Oxford and Cambridge, don't factor in legacy status, which is notable given the UK's reputation as a stratified society. There are some colleges in the United States that don't use legacy preference anymore either, like MIT, the University of California, the University of Texas, Texas A&M, and Pomona College. Amherst College making moves to be more accessible to students. The college announcing Wednesday that it's ending its legacy preference in its admissions process and in turn expanding the financial aid benefits it offers to better support students from lower and middle income families. But those institutions are outliers. Most elite schools in the United States continue to use some form of the practice. According to the ACLU, among the top 100 universities, only 27 either have never used or have ended the use of legacy preferences. Why? How is it that these seemingly liberal institutions have become so blatantly complicit in opportunity hoarding? It's hard to imagine they're still motivated by the explicit racism that drove them to adopt the policies many decades ago. As we covered last episode, these universities are bending over backwards, potentially breaking the law to signal their commitments to a certain kind of diversity. The most common public reason universities give for their legacy preferences is that having multiple generations of alumni helps foster school identity, pride, and community. I asked the education writer James Murphy about this rationale. My serious problem with that is that we have a name for when we take an institution that holds power um, and turn it into a family. That's called royalty, right? That's called aristocracy, right? Um, and so, like, my what I remember from history is we created this country to get away from this, right? Um, Jefferson's vision of America was like the very first two laws that he tried to pass when he was in the assembly. Like, this is within months of writing the Declaration of Independence. The very first two things he did was to 
uh, get rid of primogeniture, right? This idea that the firstborn son gets all the land um, and to create free public education uh, for an aristocracy of talent is what he called it. Murphy isn't alone in his skepticism. The writer Caitlin Flanagan, a legacy critic, has ridiculed the, quote, czarist notion that you can inherit Harvard the way that you can inherit hemophilia or a winter palace. Even if institutions truly believe in their community rationale, there's a likely more powerful motivation for their embrace of legacies. Emilio Castilla, uh, MIT, and Ethan Poskanzer at CU Boulder just released a paper. Um, and what they did is they looked at a private college, 16 years of data, that does use a legacy preference. Um, and what did they find? What was the motivation? They found that legacy students were more likely to be white, they're more likely to be wealthy. Um, these are not shocking revelations. They're more likely to give money as alumni, um, and they were much less likely to need financial aid. Here's the comedian, John Mulaney, on college donations. I gave my college about $120,000, okay? So you might say that I already gave them $120,000, and now you have the audacity? To ask me for more money? What kind of a coke? So why do colleges offer a legacy preference? It's purely financial. Completely and utterly financial. Judgment Day for Felicity Huffman, the Desperate Housewives star, is due in court this afternoon to become the first parent sentenced for a role in a college admission cheating scandal. You probably remember the 2019 Varsity Blues scandal that resulted in criminal charges for over 50 people accused of scheming to get students into prestigious universities. Those convicted include Hollywood actors and successful business people. The scam involved cheating SAT, ACT proctors, bribes to coaches who arranged for unqualified recruits on their teams, and at least one admissions counselor who admitted to overseeing a nearly $6 million bribery scheme. What's incredible about the scandal is how readily most observers admitted that the problem facing the accused wasn't that they bribed the colleges, it's that their bribes weren't enough. Here's a clip from Operation Varsity Blues, the Netflix documentary on the subject. A lot of the colleges won't actually guarantee the admission, which is interesting. So um, you might write a check for $3 million and the kid could end up being rejected. I think if you're not writing a 10 to $20 million check, I'm not sure it moves the needle enough for them. And here's Murphy again. Harvard's endowment is in the $50 billion range, something like that now. Like, you know, it takes a lot to, to make their eyebrows go up. Um, the Varsity Blues families were spending much less, and I think to truly buy your way in takes a lot more, especially now. If a bribe is big enough, it's no longer a bribe. It's a donation. Many universities have taken their thirst for dollars even further, allowing any rich family to buy admission at the right price. Now, you may be wondering why universities are so obsessed with donations. Don't they charge tuition? Don't they receive research grants? Many universities do rely on other forms of funding. Public universities largely run on tuition and tax dollars, and some schools like MIT or Johns Hopkins do an excellent job of attracting grants. But it's becoming rare to find a private university that runs exclusively on tuition. That's because of the growth of endowments. And by endowments, we mean funds and other assets that are donated to universities that are typically invested. For many universities, these endowments have become larger than major hedge funds, growing so rapidly that the institutions could forego tuition and other grants, becoming completely self-sustaining, what Malcolm Gladwell calls perpetual motion machines. 
Gladwell recently wrote about Princeton, who at the end of 2021 had an endowment of $37.7 billion. Now they've seen a 20-year average return on that endowment of 11.2%. As Gladwell calculated, if you just assume a more modest 10% return, that would put their expected annual return on their endowment next year at $3.77 billion. Their annual operating budget is only $1.86 billion. That means they could let every student in for free while continuing to add principal to their endowment. Harvard has reached similar status with $53 billion in the bank at the end of 2021 and an annual budget of around $5 billion. They could stop taking donations, tuition, or any other form of financial assistance. Here's Malcolm Gladwell in 2017 discussing Harvard's then $40 billion endowment. Who, who does this? Like, what, I don't know where it comes from. Like, why would you not spend your money? Like, Harvard, if you have $40 billion in your Harvard, there are tons. How many interesting educational things could you do with $40 billion if you gave yourself a 10-year time horizon? Both way, schools, Princeton and Harvard, continue to aggressively solicit their donors. The money often doesn't go to pay for higher salaries for professors or to greater access for lower-income students, at least nowhere in proportion to the growth of endowments. Here's James Murphy again. I think the endowment becomes its own justification. Um, and I mean, you, you partly can point to this like very basic things like, well, the people managing these endowments are you know, rewarded for growth, right? Certainly not for, for loss. Um, so I think it's a very just simple American kind of obsession with if you have money, the only thing that you can do with it is grow it, right? It's got to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but I don't think that, I, ultimately, I'm not so sure that the le- legacy preference comes down to growing the endowment so much, right? Because the Harvards and the Yales and the Stanfords are growing their endowment by, you know, these you know, tens of millions of dollars that people are giving them, um, you know, and, and again, the perpetual motion machine. It's the more sort of basic kind of stream of money that comes in, um, I think, that's, uh, that's important to daily operations. These endowments have become the obsession of university leaders. Writer Matt Feeney believes endowments aren't the only trigger of legacy admissions. Kids are competing with each other for, for um, on these kind of character uh, standards that are being introduced by the admissions bureaucracy. He believes that legacy admissions are a symptom of a larger problem with admissions offices generally. To Feeney, the very same so-called holistic criteria that universities like Harvard use to mass discrimination against Asian Americans are also used as self-justification for bloated and entitled admissions offices. And then this, this gives the admissions bureaucracy a tremendous amount of power to basically choose kids or, or you know, set out standards for which kids are better. And so kids end up performing in much more kind of subtle and personal and intimate ways you know, for the sake of the uh, of the admissions officials. One of these squishy, holistic measures is authenticity. They, they introduced this criterion of authenticity, right? So we have to figure out whether or not what these extracurriculars, what these kids are doing with their extracurriculars is really authentic, but it really reflects their true interests. But of course, it's not going to be authentic because the kids are doing it in order to get into college. Instead of, you know, being authentic, what they're doing is trying to look authentic which is yeah. a kind of moral travesty if you think about it. And everyone's participating in this. And it, these term, the terms in which these, you know, these things are, are, are discussed by the uh, admissions bureaucracy, they're flatly self-contradictory, right? But they, but they kind of 
go about it anyway in order to um, keep the admissions competition at a particular pitch. To Feeney, Asian Americans aren't the only victims of this process. He believes most students have become tricked into becoming performers for admissions officers. As I understand it, in the admission selection process, that they basically, it's it's another area of of kind of intimate performance where the student performs his or herself for admissions readers, right? And so the admissions readers are looking at a bunch of kids and they're like, you know, and while they, they all got the same GPAs, they all got the same SAT scores, whatever. But then they'll look in these essays and, you know, and the, and the admissions readers go, oh, I really like this kid. I like this essay. As if the kid didn't have like spent, you know, six months writing the essay and have an essay right. coach and have his parents read it and have his college counselor read it. But nonetheless, they allow themselves to fall in love with these confections as a result, the uh, you know the, the 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 kid, and this is kind of what I've written about in several of my pieces. The the applicant comes, you know, increasingly. Given that this process takes years, essentially, if the kids are real serious about it, the kids increasingly kind of view themselves and and, and assess themselves and form themselves according to their projected idea of what uh, admissions bureaucrats want. So the process at the holistic level, it becomes, um, you know, the, the students kind of internalize the need to impress admissions officials as people to kind of become good in their eyes. And so this, in my argument, this gives a lot of kind of unearned moral leverage. To illustrate how out of control this dance has become, Feeney shares a story of one particularly eager young woman. Frank Rooney, the New York Times, he tells a story about a girl who was trying to, um, who wrote an essay where she was saying that her, she was having a, a really intense academic conversation with her favorite teacher and she had to go to the bathroom and she was so committed to this conversation that instead of going to the bathroom and breaking up the conversation, she peed her pants. The response from Frank Broody is, oh my God, kids are going overboard, right? Oh my God, these people, they just, they're, they're, they're taking this all too seriously. But my argument is that, you know, they're doing this according to prompts that are being sent out there by the admissions bureaucracy, you know? Like she's like, in her head, are the wishes of imagined kind of uh, character standards of admissions bureaucrats. And she's, in, in her mind, what she's read, is that they say they really like commitment. Commitment is a really important criterion. And so what I'm doing in writing this essay is showing commitment, right? When I heard this story, I thought, well, you asked the kid to be authentic, but I guess they don't want them to be too authentic. But how are they to know how much is too much? These are young kids after all. It's authenticity, but they're also really what they're doing is making aesthetic judgments on kids. This is a little bit day class A, isn't it here? This is a little bit gross. But I know that there's another one where a kid, you know, writes an essay about how, about being a serial farter, right? And her lesson is that the guys that she's hanging around with, I always assume it's another guy who's farting and wouldn't think it's a girl because, you know, guys think of guys as farting, but they don't think of girls as farting. You know, ergo, I have like a feminist point to make here, right? So she gets to launder the grossness of her story with a little bit of feminist, you know, kind of like uh, kind of lesson offering. And, and they think that's great, you know. And so she, she gets admitted to Yale or whatever it is, you know, because she's kind of farting with the right, with the right kind of political message behind it. And, and, and you know, it's Frank Bruni's writing about this stuff as, as if this makes like total, like this is intuitively, of course, that you'd prefer the farting girl, right? These university admissions officers are the equivalent of bouncers at clubs who make everyone wait outside while they arbitrarily select who can enter. Here's an exchange I had with Feeney about this phenomenon. Imagine the bouncer like having kind of like uh, broadcast in subtle hints what he likes, right? And so once you did that, once you did that, then the um, the line at the outside the club would look different. They would everyone would look right. kind of like so, all right. This bouncer likes leopard print. 
But he's like, right. all right, your spots are too big. Your spots are too right. small. That, that's another part of the pro- of the process, the, the kind of the kind of genealogical process of this of of these methods is that. So you would say, well, you know, naively that Bonchi would say leopards leopard spots, right? And then there would be a lot of these damn leopard spots would show up, and he's like, I, you know, I wasn't specific enough. Next time around, I'm going to specify the size of leopard spots I want, you know, and then you'll get. Um, and so what, and then you end up with a kind of, so once and once he grasps it and he's like, well, you know, you know, I'd really like it if the women came up in transparent leotards, that would really please me. And then, you know, in other words, he's got this power, this selection power. And as his, you know, understanding of the process evolves, he can make, you know, more and more specific kind of, uh, demands for what kind of he wants to see. And all of a sudden the most popular dude downtown is the bouncer at this club. The more specific the bouncer is, the less power they have. If nightclubs truly just let each person in based on the order they arrived, then the bouncers would have no power. That may explain why universities have resisted clarity in their own admissions criteria, and in some ways have been taking steps to make the process even more subjective. James Murphy agrees with Feeney that universities have much to gain from enclosing their admissions processes behind a black box. Colleges have many priorities. They have to make money, um, right? They have to hit tuition revenue targets. They want to enroll a diverse class. That's true on at just about every college in America. The more highly selective, the more sort of they talk a good game of admit, admitting a diverse class. They have to get athletes. Um, they have to get musicians sometimes. Um, and they also have to keep alumni happy um, and admit legacy students as well. So it's a genuine interest in more than just simply academics. I think, leave no doubt, like holistic admissions is designed to serve the college before it serves students, if that makes sense. Most people are convinced that legacy admissions is a problem. The question is, what do we do about it? Here's Feeney. Here's one incremental, this is like a counterfact, incremental change that I would have us not make, and which that is to get rid of standardized tests. I think we ought to keep standardized tests. Um, because first of all, I think that the admissions, it's in the admissions department's interest to downplay the, the accuracy of standardized tests because that the less important they are, the more moral, the, the, the kind of the larger kind of leverage they have on these other things because essentially these hard measures tie their hands, right? And so the more they can dispense with the, t- the hard measures, then they get, more, they get more leverage to kind of like do their thing, do their administrative, their kind of moral administration that they, that they like to do, their, their kind of character judgment and kind of people, universities with kids they've chosen for these other reasons. I mean, to think about the degree to which, as, as these prerogatives have increased, how much the kind of the, what the campus looks like is the result of increasingly kind of intimate, well, first of all, the, the judgments of the, of the admissions department, but also the kind of weird transactional moral psychology but that, that goes on between the admissions department and the kids, right? So, so these kids are, in, in important ways, increasingly formed by these administrators. I would keep the uh, SATs. And also, the, you know, I think that there's a story that comes about how really that SATs are not very predictive and stuff. I think that that is overstated, that they're actually quite predictive of, of college success. And so, but, you know, they, we all, even I, I feel like I have a kind of a creepy feeling about this stuff, about how, how this, this can be kind of, you know, people's fates can be written by these things. But, you know, they're, they're, they're better than the admissions department tend to say they are. Unfortunately, universities are heading in the wrong direction, dropping objective criteria like standardized tests. According to the Washington Post, during the heart of the COVID pandemic, for the 2021 school year, 
More than 90% of schools on the U.S. News and World Report lists of top 100 liberal arts colleges and top 100 universities nationwide stopped requiring test scores. Many of those schools have extended their test-optional policies indefinitely, and Harvard has continued theirs until at least 2026. Universities are somehow responding to their own inequity by pushing policies that actually give them even more power to make kids perform for them. And for Feeney, a more sensible solution would be to combine objective measures like standardized tests and GPA with a lottery system. The principle is interesting, and that is a lottery, an admissions lottery, where you have, you kind of like, you introduce a certain floor, and for these elite schools, this floor is going to be quite high, right? You have this, this huge number of applicants of kids who are like incredibly accomplished on simple academic measures. You, you kind of set a floor, which is going to be pretty, pretty high, of, of kids who, who are qualified to get in, and the colleges do this already, right, with their in their regular procedures. And instead of like then kind of advancing into um, this intimate kind of like character analysis of, you know, comparing kids according to the supposed value of their, you know, moral contribution to the campus or whatever, or, or how much they, they're liked by the admissions readers. Um, instead of doing that, you've got a bunch of people and then pick random, <laughs> pick at random, right? All of this is obfuscating randomness anyway. And so you might as well kind of you know, embrace the randomness and, and get rid of the moral manipulation. Another thing we could do is add more seats. Usually when there's a huge demand for a product, the makers of that product make more of it. But these elite colleges operate more like luxury brands. For them, scarcity is part of the point. Schools can do this both through brick and mortar, building more buildings, but they could also do it through technology, allowing access to people who aren't going to show up in person and allowing access for people to credential themselves from afar. Now, my favorite solution, at least to the legacy question, would be to leverage the tax-exempt status of these universities. I believe the government should strip any university of their nonprofit status if they don't dramatically expand the number of seats available to low-income students which they could do by either ending legacy admissions and replacing them with low-income students, or by increasing the number of seats overall to accommodate more low-income students. I'd even go so far as to require every nonprofit college to admit at least 50% of students from the bottom 50% of income in this country with proportional representation at the very bottom 10% as well. But should we go further? Should we ban legacies altogether? That's a question Adam Grant recently posed to Malcolm Gladwell. I, I, uh, it seems like there's a lot of discussion, though, that around how we should eliminate legacies, right? So MIT doesn't take into account legacy factors at all. Mm. I've been wondering if we should go further and we should actually ban legacies. Yeah. So if your parents went to Penn, you should not be allowed here. What do you think? I, well, listen, I mean, you know me. I, nothing would make me happier than anything like... <laughs> I love that idea. I don't understand why. I mean, it really just is about raising money. And since you have enough money... I, don't, I think you can probably put that aside for a while. Um, you could even go further. How about you could ban relatives? <laughs> you could say you have to be at least a third cousin in order to be considered. You have to I mean, submit like, your family tree in an application. To James Murphy, if we can't achieve an outright ban, we should at least demand better information. An outright ban on legacy is, is what we need. Um, but if we can't get that, we need a lot more information. Colleges should be required to, to tell us a lot more about their legacy applicants, admits, and enrollees. California, after uh, Varsity Blues broke, California tried to pass a law, Phil Tink from San Francisco, tried to pass a law banning legacy. You can imagine how 
the universities reacted. There's a lot of rich private universities um, in California, uh, one pretty near San Francisco. Um, so the big pushback against banning it, what California did pass is a law that requires students to report how many students who were either legacies or donors. And of course, there's a lot of overlap in that group. Um, you know, legacy parents are going to be smart enough to donate. The numbers of people who got in who are just donors are tiny, uh, typically single digits. Because the amount of money you need to count as a donor, the amount of money it takes to get the development office to get on the phone, never an email, uh, with the admissions office and say, hey, you know, could you take a look at this guy, is millions. Um, you know, the, 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 the family that's like quietly donating a thousand or five thousand or even ten thousand dollars a year, year after year, preparing for this, they're not going to appear on the radar. That's it for this week's episode. I'd love to thank Professor Ginny Sue Gerson, Jasmine Harris, James Murphy, and Matt Feeney for their insightful perspectives on legacy admissions. Progressives is produced for The Lost Debate by me, Ravi Gupta, with research support and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht. You could subscribe to Lost Debate and The Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. On the next episode of The Regressives, we'll speak with Batia Ungar Sargon on the dangers of woke media as she sees it. You know, the starting salary of a journalist is something like, you know, $35,000 a year. So people are like, how dare you say journalists are elite? Look how little money they're making. It's like, exactly. You have to live in New York City on $35,000 a year. That's just not something that any working class person can manage. And so that has totally shifted who the news is for. That's it for The Regressives. I'm Ravi Gupta. Thank you for listening.